Hebrews 20:20, we see Jesus. This is increment 286, and we are moving into Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, but especially verses 8 through 11 today. So we are, despite our interweaving of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21 for 10 messages, we are also progressing in this heavenly homily called Hebrews. And with regard to that, Father, we ask that you will bless the going forth of your word. May it proceed forth with omnipotent grace. And may it proceed forth to the salvation of the souls of many. May your word bring healing. And may it bring restoration where needed, conversion where necessary and a mighty upbuilding of the New Covenant community, which is your church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, Psalm 145.9 is a verse that's grabbed my attention recently, and it simply says, The Lord is good to everyone. And then the second half of the verse says, His compassion rests on all he has made. This reminded me, of course, of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ the Lord, that he is good to everyone with salvific good, and that his compassion rests on all he has made, shows that not only does his salvation have an anthropological direction, but also an all-creational direction, a universal direction in terms of all that he has made. So 145.9, Psalm 145.9 is a verse for your consideration, your memorization, your contemplation, and mine. Secondly, we'll consider the road to the Holy of Holies. I've said on Sunday that the Lord is taking us beyond a mere exegesis of this homily. He's showing us the road to the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is the place of the immediate presence of God in the heavenlies, and the Holy Spirit is making clear to us the road to the Holy of Holies. That road is a blood trail that leads through the torn curtain of Jesus' flesh into the Holy of Holies, the immediate presence of the thrice holy God. I say thrice holy because the angels say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of the armies. The word for road or way or highway is hados, H-O-D-O-S. The Greek would be H-O-D-O-S, like this, hados, and it's translated road. The same word is used when Jesus said this, very familiar to most of us, I'm sure, I am the way. I am the hados the way, the road, we could say, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we would say that Jesus is the road to the Father and to the heavenly holy of holies. The road is paved, as it were, with his poured out blood and passes through the torn curtain of his flesh. This is my blood, which is poured out for many. Eat this, for this is my body, given for many. 
when Jesus stood before his disciples, especially for Tom, before Thomas, he said, see my hands and my feet and put your hand into my side because there was the tear in his side, tear in his hands and feet. And that's the picture of the torn curtain into the Holy of Holies. He is saying to Thomas, look, I am the torn curtain, the curtain that was torn so that you could all go into the immediate presence of my Father. I am that road. I am the way. I am that highway. I am the sum total of the truth, reality. I am the life, the life that will be for all in future world. So thirdly, what we'll do is look at our working translation of Hebrews chapter 9 and move pretty rapidly through it until we get to verse 8. Now indeed the first, meaning the first covenant, had associated with it regulations for service and a cosmic sanctuary. Now we're talking here about something that is the Latin word describes it as cultus, cultus. And we have the adjective cultic. Now, of course, ever since the 60s, we've had the word cult associated with weird sects of religious practice, usually hovering around a personality, a personality cult, we would call it. But the original word for cult or cultus means a system of worship. The Levitical cultus is the system of worship through sacrifices, animal sacrifices, meal sacrifices, and peace offerings, etc., through the priestly service of Levitical priests, priests appointed by God through Moses' law, the sons of Aaron, and there was an entire cultus around them. This cultus provided an analogy or a juxtaposition to the once and for all and forever sacrifice of our great archpriest. The activities of, for example, on the Day of Atonement, special activities, annual activities on the Day of Atonement provided a rhetorical juxtaposition to what I call the eternal Day of Atonement and to the once and for all singular action of sacrifice by our great archpriest Jesus Christ, the archpriest forever after the order of Melchizedek as we studied quite extensively in Hebrews chapter 7. And so Hebrews 9.1, now indeed the first covenant, that's the old covenant made at Mount Sinai with Moses as a mediator and angelic mediators also. Now indeed the first covenant had associated with it regulations for service and a cosmic sanctuary. A sanctuary which to the Jew represented the universe. It had cosmic significance or universal significance and this writer of course is using a backhanded means of expressing the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. That's not only my theory, but it's my premise in teaching Hebrews. The universally saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally efficacious 
sacrifice that he offered once and for all, for all. And he tasted death for everyone. Death, the wages of sin. Verse 2, a tent was furnished. The first room or compartment of which was called the holies. This is the first in the order of approach to the holy of holies. It's not the first tent, but the first room or compartment of the old earthly tent. First room of which was called the holies, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second curtain was a section called the Holy of Holies, having the golden altar and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the first covenant. Verse 5, and above the Ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation. We now know that place of expiation as Jesus Christ and him crucified. The righteous one who is the expiation for our sins, but not only our sins, the sins of the whole world, the universal impact of the cross of Christ. About which things, and this is what I want to emphasize, about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. It's always tempting to speak in detail of each of these furnishings of the, co of the tent, the Old Testament tent and their significance. And in fact, he does kind of fan these out later on, but not now, so I'm not going to do it right now. These things being prepared just so, that means precisely prepared in order, decently and in order as God showed Moses in the mountain, the pattern as we learn from Hebrews 8, 2 through 5. These things being prepared just so, ordered just right in each room of the tent. Once they had been arranged just so, into the first room of the tent, the priests keep entering all the time, the apantos, regularly. This implies repetition, repeated going in, going in repeatedly, which indicates that what they were offering wasn't once and for all sufficient. The very fact that it needed repeating showed that it did not do Ultimately, it did not decisively purge the conscience or purge the worshiper or purify them from sins. And this is brought up later. These things being prepared just so, that is the rooms of the tent being furnished exactly as God put it. Into the first room of the tent, the priest kept entering all the time. Daily, that means. Daily, sometimes night and day. Performing their service. That's the priestly ministry. Jesus also has a priestly ministry. He is a minister in the holiest place, as Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 says. But into the second compartment, once a year, only the archpriest goes. A reference here to Leviticus 7, 16, 17 and the Hebrew Kohen HaGadol. 
Kohen is the word for, pri word for priest. Kohen Ha-Gadol, the great archpriest or the high priest. Once a year, on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, only one goes in. This is a reference, of course, or a correlation with 2 Corinthians 5.14. As we've seen, when one died, since one died, one archpriest died, representing all, so all died. So only, one, only once a year, only the archpriest, none of the other priests or Levites would go into the second room through the second curtain. Never without blood, which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Of course, there is the law of similarity and dissimilarity in this, as we've seen before and will no doubt see again. Jesus, as the archpriest who went in, not annually, but once and for all, bringing about an eternal Yom Kippur, an eternal day of atonement. He did not offer for himself because he knew no sin. Instead, he became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. His obedience to the extent of death, the death of the cross, resulted in all being made righteous, all of humanity. And so the Old Testament archpriest went in once a year offering blood not for all the people alone, but for himself first and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. Notice this, sins committed in ignorance. Again, there's a dissimilarity here because Jesus Christ, our great archpriest, did not only offer a sacrifice for the sins of ignorance, nor did he offer a sacrifice only for the sins of ignorance of the people called Israel. Rather, he offered one sacrifice for all humanity over the course of all time and for all sins, whether of ignorance or cognizance, whether willful or, will, or unwillful sins. Now, here's where we want to pick up in our earnest exegesis in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that the road, hados, as we've seen, the road to the Holy of Holies is not yet disclosed while the first tent has standing. A lot of application comes right here. In fact, there's a dual meaning. While the first tent has standing means if you're a person at this time and you're a Jewish person who is living at this time and you think and in fact you're committed to the idea that the tent, the old tent of the old covenant has standing in your view. It has prominence that you think that the sacrifice is offered in that tent which is now transferred to the temple, the stone temple in Jerusalem. You think that Levitical cultus, with its sacrifices, still has standing or prominence, then the Holy Spirit hasn't made clear to you that the way into the Holy of Holies is the blood of Christ, 
not the blood of animals, that it is the offering made by the great archpriest, not by a son of Aaron, and that it is a road paved by the blood of Christ, so to speak, speaking metaphorically, and through the curtain, which is his flesh, which is specifically spoken of in Hebrews 10.20. The curtain, that is to say his flesh. And so we have the curtain that is his flesh. In Colossians 1.14, for example, we have, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That means for redemption is the forgiveness of sins. That's what we have because of Christ's sacrifice. And so by this, the Holy Spirit is making clear that the road to the Holy of Holies is not yet disclosed while the first tent has standing. Meaning, if you think the first tent has standing, that it has prominence, that it is the reality of your time, you're not going to see the real road to the Holy of Holies. You're not going to see what the Holy Spirit is disclosing. If you're committed to a system of doctrine and a system of dogma, for example, Calvinist election or something like that, and you think that has prominence over all things and you're not willing to allow the Holy Spirit to show you deeper, further, wider, higher, and broader truths than that, and to see perhaps the election of all humanity in the elect one, Jesus Christ, who is the only one that God reprobated and judged and rejected, then you're going to be seeing Calvinist doctrine as having prominence and having standing, and you're going to, the Holy Spirit is not going to disclose to you a greater truth. We always have to be totally open to God. That's why if I were asked, are you a liberal theologian? I would say no. If they would say, are you a conservative theologian? I would say no. Instead, I'm totally open to God theologically. What are you going to lead me in? How will you lead me in the scripture? Show me something further. Show me something beyond. You're the God that does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So do exceedingly abundantly above all I ask or think. Show me things that I don't know yet, according to Jeremiah 33. Call upon me and I will show you things that you have not yet seen, that you have not yet imagined, that you have not yet considered. And that's what he does. And so the road to the true heavenly holy of holies, to God himself, the holy of holies is God himself, and his immediate presence was not disclosed to those of the generation in which Hebrews was preached and proclaimed as a homily in writing. As long as anybody considered the old covenant and the old Levitical cultus to have standing or to enjoy prominence after the eternal great archpriest that made his once and for all offering, they would never see the way into the true holy of holies. How could they? It is only the Holy Spirit who discloses that way, and those who insisted on holding on to the premier prominence of the old covenant and following the old cultus were actually resisting the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what Stephen accused the Sanhedrin of doing. And the writer to Hebrews is a guy that's a lot like Stephen. It wasn't Stephen. 
because Stephen died long before this epistle was written. But it's a guy like Stephen, I believe, a Hellenistic Jewish Christian who was not only well aware of all the scriptures in the Septuagint, but also well aware of Aristotle and Plato and the philosophers, as we might see later on. This is exactly, then, this resistance of the Spirit is what Stephen accused the Sanhedrin of doing. Shortly before he was stoned to death by them, he said, and I think this might have been the trigger that brought the stones, stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your ancestors did, so do you. That's Acts 7.51. As your ancestors did, so do you. If the Holy Spirit is intending to show the way clearly, the road to the Holy of Holies, by the blood of Christ and through the veil that is his flesh, and they would rather hold on to the standing of the old Levitical cultus, then God's got a problem with them. They have a problem with God, and they are under the warning of severe judgment. The warning put forth in Hebrews is one that reflects the words of Stephen. It consists of a warning that the readers of Hebrews don't follow the obdurate example of their ancestors of the Exodus generation. Now, the Hebrews were a people who had enlightenment. They had received the knowledge of the truth. And so they were even more accountable than non-Christian Jews because they had been enlightened to the truth of the finished work of Christ, the once and for all offering of the great archpriest. And for them to buckle and them to return and apostatize and go back to the Levitical cultus as if that had standing would mean ultimately, and I think it would mean, that they may have been even moved to go to Jerusalem to participate in the Day of Atonement or to participate in some of the feasts and festivities and offerings in Jerusalem just before the abomination of desolation surrounded the city. That would be disastrous. They would be inviting what Hebrews 10.27 calls the fiery indignation that was about to devour the adversaries, the resistors of the Spirit. Believe it or not, they would be under that judgment. And so, it of course is not the judgment of hell, but it is a maximum historical judgment. A fiery death really isn't something you really want. The warning put forth in Hebrews is one that reflects, therefore, or correlates with the words of Stephen. It consists of a warning of the readers of Hebrews that, that they would not follow the obdurate example of their ancestors of the Exodus generation, for example. I hope we remember that passage in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11, which began with this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit is saying, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as, the, as in the embitterment that led to revolt during the day of testing in the desert. I just happen to be one of those people that believes that today we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit just as today, there today, they could hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is pouring out his grace 
on us to give us a much larger, much wider, much deeper, and much higher view of the love of Christ and apprehension and appropriation of the love of Christ and to show us his universally saving significance without causing us to compromise into some soft and fluffy view of the atoning death of Christ, which some have fallen into. The standing of the tent here, Stassen, as we've seen before, and this is important also, and it's a, an advance on our doctrine so far. The standing of the tent connected with the Old Covenant has a double meaning here. The Holy Spirit is referring also to the temple in Jerusalem. The tent is no longer in the desert in Moses' day. The tent now has its function in a stone temple, in a temple complex in Jerusalem. And so the Holy Spirit is also referring to the temple in Jerusalem. With it still standing, do you see this? Do you still, with it still standing, that temple, the way into the true holy of holies is continually being obscured. That's why when Jesus told his disciples, not a stone will be left down on a stone of this, what ha it had to come down. It had to come down. It simply had to come down because it was obscuring the true way of salvation. And as Jesus said, you guys are going out as missionaries and you're making your converts twofold the child of hell that you are. And hell is Gehenna there, not eternal hell. But you're causing them to come into Jerusalem when the Romans are going to come and throw a lot of bodies into Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom around Jerusalem. So with it standing, the temple, which is effectively the tent, the old tent, the way into the true holy of holies is continually being obscured to people. It has to come down. It simply has to come down. This is what Jesus was indicating when he cleansed the temple in Matthew 21, when he kicked over the money tables, when he occupied the temple in a pretty militant speech act, in an, a symbolic act. And this is also what the Father was indicating when he tore the curtain to the symbolic Holy of Holies in the temple when Jesus cried with a loud voice from the cross. Caiaphas, the high priest, or the ersatz high priest at the time, tore his garment when Jesus made the claim of his divine messiahship. God the Father went further. He tore the curtain in the temple when Jesus demonstrated his divine sonship from the cross, crying, Father, into your hands, I entrust my spirit. Later in the homily, the PT is even more ardent about this warning. In Hebrews 10.29, he warns of the maximum severity of judgment on those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the new and everlasting covenant as being of no account and who have insulted the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29. The spirit of grace is precisely the hegemonic spirit, as uh, Psalm 51.12 calls him in the Greek text. It actually calls him that in 50.14 of the Psalms. The Lord, the spirit, who makes clear the way to the holy of holies. The way... To the Holy of Holies. 
The spirit of grace is precisely the hegemonic spirit, the Lord, the spirit, who makes clear the way to the Holy of Holies, the way this Son of God took, and the way that is paved by his blood, the blood of the new and better and everlasting covenant. The spirit of grace in Zechariah 12.10 is being poured out. It is said to have been poured out on the house of David in Zechariah 12.10. Well, who is the house of David today? The royal priesthood. The spirit of grace is being poured out today on our generation at the present time to show the house of David specifically and first, that's the new covenant community, the universal grace of Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ be with all is the last verse of the Bible in Revelation twenty two twenty one, and I'm sure God wanted that universal grace to be poured out on all people from that time on. That which is called the church, however, has become a new stone temple, obscuring that way under the guidance of the God of this age who blinds the minds of the unbelieving in 2 Corinthians 4, 3. What does he blind the minds from? From the gospel of the glory of the Christ, glory that will fill all the earth, the glory of the Christ who is the image of God. And so today, those who claim to be representatives of Jesus Christ are, in many cases, the obscurers of the gospel of Jesus Christ just like the Pharisees of old who represented, who sat in Moses' seat, Jesus said. He said they sit in Moses' seat. And yet, you can do what they say if they say the law, but just don't do what they do. That's Matthew 23, 1 and 2. The community in our time, that is the new covenant community in our time, is under the same warning not to insult the spirit of grace, who at this time is revealing the universality of God's saving grace and his great mercy and love. The hegemonic Holy Spirit, the Lord, the spirit who leads the sons of God in Romans 8.14 and Galatians 5.18 in an, a life of the higher integration of living in Christ Jesus, is the same Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth, and he is leading us into the truth of the universally saving significance and the universally saving sacrificial love of Christ so that we can grasp the significance of this love and become effective representatives of the message of God's reconciliation of the world to himself in Christ so that our feet can be truly shod with the preparation to proclaim and explain the gospel of peace and to be ready with an answer to anyone who asks us about the reason for our confident hope. What if the church in America was, received, was refusing this spirit of grace and his beckoning us to the universality of grace in Jesus Christ? What if they were refusing it? Why would they be then free from the judgment that happened in Jerusalem. Thankfully, we know from history, we know from a pretty accurate rendition of history, 
that Jerusalem was free from any Christians in its midst when the judgment came down. Only unbelievers were there. So they had adhered to the warning in Hebrews, the warning in Matthew 24, the warning in Mark 13, the warnings in Luke 21, the warnings throughout the whole New Testament, which held within it from beginning to end a trajectory toward A.D. 70. So let's move to verse 9. This is what we call a parable for the present time. Why? Because that's what the author called it, Hebrews 9. This is a parable, and I would rather call it a cultic symbolic representation for the present time. Parabole is used here, but it's interesting because parabole is a word used only in the New Testament in Hebrews 9.9 and 11.19, where the rest of the uses are in the Synoptic Gospels, parabole. And so it's literally parable. But I'm going to show you something about this, and this has to do with the author, where the author's coming from. He not only knows the Old Testament scriptures in the Septuagint Greek text, but he also is aware of the Aristotelian and the Platonic understanding of this word and how it's used in military historians like Polybius and Diodorus and others. So that's why we got to study a little bit of the background here without showing off, of course. But Hebrews 9.9, this is a parable for the present time. And the present time here is their present, the present time of the writing of this epistle, which I think is probably in the mid-60s, just on the eve of the destruction of Jerusalem, just on the eve of the siege of Jerusalem by the uh, armies called the Abomination of Desolation by Daniel and, and by Jesus in Matthew twenty four fifteen. So the present time then, at that time, there was still the offering of sacrifices and the going of the priest annually into the holiest place of all in the temple in Jerusalem. This was still ongoing. So that's their present time, the present time of the author and the, recipi the initial recipients of this epistle. So this is a parable for the present time, he says, in which both gifts and offerings are, and this is the present tense here, still, and I would even translate it that way, in which gifts and offerings are still being presented. That's after the once and for all sacrifice of Christ, which is going to be the primary focus from now on in this central section of Hebrews, in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented, which are not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. That means completely cleanse. The word teleao is used here. The conscience of the worshiper. So the whole Levitical cultus, with its tabernacle, its tent, and its regulations for service, are of great value to us. And why? Because they are a wealth of symbolism and a juxtaposition symbolism by which we can understand by comparison, mostly by similarity and dissimilarity, mostly by dissimilarity with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the whole Levitical cultus with its tabernacle and its regulations for service, known intimately to the initial readers of the Hebrews homily, incidentally, 
was intended to be a parable, and I put that in air quotes, parable, or in quotes in my writing in the written version of this, for their time in which despite the once and for all sacrifice of the great eternal archpriests, gifts and offerings were still being presented. Gifts and offerings which are patently, obviously, impotent to decisively purify the conscience of the worshiper. This is one reason why we should probably consider Hebrews, and I'm saying almost most definitely consider Hebrews as having been written and dispatched prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and its vaunted stone temple in August of A.D. 70. Though the writer uses the literal word for parable here, parabole, in verse 9, we shouldn't understand it in the sense that it's used in the synoptic gospels, stories that illustrate a principle. The Levitical, the Levitical cultus served rather to be a detailed symbolic representation. That's how, in fact, that's how the American Heritage College Dictionary defines it, this parabole or parable, as a symbolic representation. And so that's how I'm going to translate it. The, Leviticus cult, the Levitical cultus served rather to be a detailed symbolic representation of the once and for all sacrifice of the Messiah, the great eternal archpriest after the order of Melchizedek. Like an analogy, it's like an analogy, but not quite like an analogy, the Levitical cultus presented a similarity in some respects to Jesus' offering and priestly service. But the writer also deploys the law of similarity and dissimilarity, more importantly, dissimilarities, that accentuate the infinite superiority of Christ's high priestly sacrifice and ongoing ministry in the heavenly holy of holies. For parable, we would be better served than to use the term juxtaposition is another term. Juxtaposition, I'll explain why. In other words, it, this whole system and all of its cultus is juxtaposed with Christ and his self-sacrifice on the cross in order to illustrate the meaning of Christ's high priestly sacrifice and ongoing ministry in the heavenly holy of holies. So for parable... We'd be better served to use the term juxtaposition or symbolic representation. The Freiburg lexicon, which I still consult frequently, is right to see this word as, quote, a rhetorical figure of speech setting one thing beside another. Well, that's a juxtaposition. Setting one thing beside another to form a comparison or illustration. And the Freiburg lexicon goes on to say, specifically in Hebrews, it's a prophetic symbol or type or figure. Now, Aristotle, and I know this from Liddell Scott's lexicon, which is always helpful from a historical standpoint. Aristotle, with whom this author was no doubt familiar, used the word parabole in the sense of comparison illustration, or analogy. Plato 
with whom the author was probably acquainted and of whom the writer was probably knowledgeable, Plato used it in literally the sense of juxtaposition or comparison. Also, this is found in Liddell Scott. Thayer, Joseph Thayer's trans, uh, lexicon, rather, finds the word in the ancient historian Polybius. And he, Polybius defines it as juxtaposition using the symbol of ships in battle. In that sense, well, you'd see a ship in juxtaposition with another ship, but it would be opposition to one another, obviously. So the Levitical cultus was a ship in opposition to the other ship, which is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ in that analogy. So both Aristotle and Plato used the term parabole, not in the sense of a little story like in the synoptics, an important story to illustrate a point, but in the sense of juxtaposition or comparison. And Polybius also used it in terms of military tactics in ships in battle. In that sense, we'd have to see the juxtaposition as indicating opposition and thus contrast. Now, the Septuagint, of, that's the Old Testament in Greek, the Greek text of the Old Testament. In passages like Numbers 23.7 and Numbers 24.3 speak of the oracle of the man whose eye is opened. And that parabole is therefore an oracle of the man whose eye is opened. Very curious. It's very interesting that that's the name of the oracle of Balaam. It's a figurative discourse, in other words. The Levitical cultus itself becomes a figurative discourse, very helpful to understanding the universally saving impact of the cross of Christ and his self-offering in love. So the author of Hebrews has also written a discourse. That's what Hebrews is. It's the discourse of a man whose eye has been opened, in fact. In fact, both of the eyes of his heart had been opened to see Jesus, who experienced death for everyone, and who is now crowned with glory and honor. This man sees Jesus. His eyes have been opened. Hebrews, therefore, is a discourse of, the, of a man whose eyes have been opened. This man, this pastor teacher, this unnamed person, finds a wealth of material in the Levitical cultus to show by juxtapo juxtaposition the astonishing accomplishment of Jesus and the eternal and universalistic saving glories of his person. Juxtaposition is a very good word here because Levitical cultus, especially of the day, speaking of the day of atonement in the Levitical cultus, is juxtaposed with what I call the eternal day of atonement, which we're in right now, also called the day of salvation on which the eternal archpriest made a single, unrepeatable, everlasting, and universally efficacious self-sacrifice in unimaginable love to bring about the astonishing salvation of all of humanity and the liberation of creation, all of creation, from its slavery to corruption. Hebrews 9.10 goes on, therefore, to say the Levitical cultus having to do only with foods and drinks and various ritual washings. 
We compare this with the kingdom of God, which isn't meat and drink in Romans 14, 17. Regulations involving the body, that is, only the outward flesh, until, of course, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all in Hebrews 10, 10. So these regulations, this Levitical cultus and the regulations are imposed only up until the time of the correction, the correction, the deorthosis. And deorthosis is Hebrew's word, which kind of correlates with apocatastasis in Acts 3.1, anakephaliosis in Ephesians 1.10, referring to the universal restoration, the universal reconciliation of all things. The next thing that we're going to consider here, and I'll do it in a subsequent message, not in this message, is that the New Covenant community are agents of the divine beneficence and benevolence. We are to be agents, or even we could be called mediators in another sense, mediators of divine goodness. The goodness that God shows to everyone, we are the mediators of it. The New Covenant community are the mediators of the goodness that God shows to everyone, the mercy that God intends to show to all, the compassion that he has for all that he has made. We are to be the agents of that, the distributors of that, the dispensers of that, the vehicles of that. We could be the instrumentality of that, and I'll give you a hint of it in Hebrews 9.11. And this, again, is the precise center, according to Moffat, M-O-F-F-A-T, his, his study of Hebrews, this is exactly the center, the literary, the literal center of Hebrews, Hebrews 9.11. Now the Messiah has come, it says, as an archpriest of good things that have come and are coming. I'll explain to you why I say that in our next increment good things that have already come and good things, that's agathos, divinely good, beneficent and benevolent things that are coming. Why both? I'll explain in our next increment. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to see that you have provided some very good things from the Levitical cultists. You certainly did not provide salvation by them or the cleansing of the conscience by them, but you sure presented a wonderful analogy and juxtaposition so that by them we can understand and perceive and appreciate the once and for all and forever self-sacrifice in the unimaginable love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to understand, therefore, by the, the wealth of symbolism in the Levitical cultus, the magnificence of the once and for all offering of Jesus Christ, by which we are sanctified and being sanctified, by which we are perfected forever, by which the world has been reconciled to God, by God in Christ. For he who knew no sin became sin for us, and once... Now, at the end or termini of the ages, he offered himself to put away sin. Help us to understand these remarkable truths and help us to use the method and means of the Levitical cultus 
to actually do this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.